Good afternoon. This is your host, John, of the Research Review, creating a platform to connect and inspire. I'm here with another awesome guest today, Alexandra. Hi. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your research? Yeah, of course. I am a senior at Kent State University pursuing my degree um, in theater design technology and production with a concentration in stage management. And then my research was a bilingual experience, a trip to Bogota through theater. Um, I got to experience a theater production with my mentor, Fabio Polanco. Uh, I was able to stage manage La Siempre Viva, the U.S. premiere at Latinas Theater in Cleveland. And with Fabio, we were kind of able to experience how a bilingual experience affects artists, how a bilingual experience affects the audience viewing the art and just how a language barrier and a difference in language can affect art. Yeah, no, that's really awesome. And what kind of um, motivated you to do research in this direction and see the difference? I was kind of being in the right place at the right time and then turned into a great experience. I um, did theater and Spanish separately all throughout high school Mm -hmm. and then kind of focused more on theater when I got to college um, but still kept Spanish and other languages in the back of my mind and then Fabio came to me with this opportunity and then I found the shore program and kind of combined the two together and pursued my two passions for Spanish and theater and was able to put it all together. Mm -hmm. Now that's really cool. A lot of people say that with the SURE program and getting involved in research here at Kent State has been just like in the right place at the right time and they were never expecting that they get into research. Was that your original major was theater? Yes. Okay. When when you came into college did you ever think that you were going to get involved into research? Not research, no. I didn't know that the Shore program existed until about I think last year right before I signed up to join it and then I kind of did more research deep dive into the program itself and figured out how wonderful it was and couldn't wait to get started and see what what happened. Yeah, it was so cool. What was it? What do you what would you say was your favorite part? Kind of experiencing how research ties to theater in ways other than dramaturgy and researching the plot and what people would normally expect of just turning the research experience into just that an experience. Mm-hmm. And that was really cool for me throughout the process just to be able to experience it and then look back and realize how much research I actually did in the process. Yeah. When you say the word research experience, that's a a really big thing that employers are looking for, like when you're looking to get a job after college um, in any field, at theater as well. They always emphasize what you learn from the research experience. And that's a really cool thing that, say, like sets you apart from a lot of other people applying to the job. Because how many other undergraduate students, you know, especially in theater that conducted research when forming their own performance? In fact, of performance, Um, we all have our own different processes when Mm -hmm. going towards a production, so all of us end up doing research, and most of us don't even know it. That would be how I would put it, is all of us do research, but only a few of us kind of look back and realize, oh, this is all of the work that I was putting in, and this is how I can market that work. Yeah, that's a really really interesting point. And then, um, say, that research process... Um, outside of the SURE program or within the SURE program, how do you think those would like differ from each other when writing your own performance? Outside of the SURE program, it's more on your own time with your own resources. Um, so limited as that may be, depending on the person in the process, you kind of look into, like if you're an actor, you research the 
character that you're portraying or you research the time period or you research any other things that might tie into the plot. If you're a designer, you want to look at the specific artistic aspects that you're going to be portraying on stage and then also talk with the director about what they want and then those two kind of mesh together. Directors research anything and everything about the play. Um, Stage managers kind of talk with the director and work in their own processes there but then with the short program you're able to take a specific aspect of it instead of looking at the whole research preparation as a whole is you take one specific aspect of it like the bilingual experience and how that affects everyone and be able to dive deep into that and with expanded resources you can find information that you didn't know you were going to find before right um like what kind of expanded resources would you say you're talking about i know there were a lot of opportunities for just talking to other people that you don't normally have in your circle. Mm-hmm. That was kind of an expanded verbal network for me yeah. of just bouncing ideas off of people who don't normally listen to me talk or don't know how my brain works. And it's kind of interesting to talk with them to get different ideas and different points of view on what you're presenting. Mm-hmm. No, I totally I totally agree with you on that. I think that's been my favorite part of starting this podcast is getting guests on from completely different fields and then bouncing those ideas off of people and having conversations with uh, individuals whose minds are in a completely different discipline. And it's expanded my perception on a lot of things and have helped me come up with so many creative ideas that I never would have thought of on my own or if I were to stay in talking to people in, within my own field. So it's been a great, great pleasure. Now, what did you find out of your research? The biggest thing that I found in my experience is that art is art no matter what language it's presented in. Mm -hmm. Um, It was was what I discussed in my three-minute thesis earlier last semester, is that for example, my parents who speak um, even less English or even less Spanish, excuse me, than I do, um, were able to come to this show, see, um, read the supertitles, and still understand the show that was being presented. They came to see the show twice. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time, they were very focused on the supertitles to focus on the words that were being presented. But then they came back the second time, and even though it was about a week or two later, they had not learned any more Spanish, maybe a couple words here yeah. and there, but they were able to focus more on the artists, the blocking, the projections that were happening, the lighting design, and just the show as a whole, mm-hmm. just because the way it was presented and the way everything was put together, you can still understand what's happening on the stage, even though if you don't understand word for word what the actors are saying. Right. So do you think understanding what's going on on stage and then associating that with the language kind of helps people pick up some sort of dialogue? I think it depends on the person because some people learn verbally and then visually and some people learn visually first and then vocally. Um, I know sometimes for me it's easier to see things and then look back and then read it and then understand it a lot better. Some people need to know what's being said before they head in but it's an interesting thing to go back and forth of the learning processes and the research processes comparing those and then putting those people in a theater to see what they can draw from this experience right English was your first language Mm -hmm. right and then what kind of made you decide you wanted to learn Spanish picked up as most high schoolers do is everybody in my class picked up Spanish we had to take a language in order to graduate we had to at least take 
I want to say two years, kind of similar to mm -hmm. college. Um, and then I found Spanish. Um, my neighbor actually was one of the Spanish teachers. Um, so nice. then I kind of got an earlier start to it and yeah. like would help her out with other things before I got to high school. And then I started to take the classes and really fell in love with the culture and just the language itself. Kind of fell off a little bit with it in college just because well, everything picked up with theater. Yeah, that's totally understandable, yeah. <laughs> uh, free time became limited, so I um, fell more into theater than Spanish but it's always in the back of my brain and then I got the opportunity to jump back in with La Siempre Viva. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Would you say that you learned a majority of your Spanish within those two years in high school? Oh, I actually took the two years and then they trapped me in the love for Spanish and I stayed for another three I believe so I kept going throughout all of high school okay and then took I think a couple classes my freshman year of college before everything kind of transferred over yeah so through all of that went through the advanced placement program classes um, all of those the seal of biliteracy test all of the many tests before graduation and then kind of took a little bit of a break, kind of fell more into theater. But then mm -hmm. with Fabio coming and reaching out to me about La Siempre Viva, I kind of jumped right back in. Nice. So it's been really cool to get back in touch with that. La Siempre Viva. That's, the, that's what, how you yeah, pronounce it. Yeah, La Siempre Viva. Okay, cool. I took Spanish um, two years in high school. <laughs> Nothing stuck. And, you know, I've always wanted to learn a second language. I think it'd be really cool not only to be able to, um, you know, talk with uh, those that I know within their um first language, but also, too, to see how it affects different thought processes. Do you catch yourself thinking in Spanish sometimes? Yes. You do? <laughs> Ask anybody who knows me. I will end up blurting random things out in Spanish when I can't think of the word in English or just it just comes out yeah. sometimes. That's, in that's, that's so interesting. <laughs> like, do, is, are there specific things that you think about in English and then things that you think about in Spanish or does it just just kind of happen it just kind of happens which like I don't know the best way to explain it it's just I was immersed for so long in mm -hmm. translating everything over to Spanish because that would be how we kind of like the group of us in high school that would practice is we would have to speak Spanish in class so I would have really? to speak Spanish at 8 30 in the morning every day um, for an entire person, year. Right? No, I'm not a morning person. <laughs> yeah. um, so I would speak Spanish and then go directly to the outside environment of the school, which was English speaking. So kind mm -hmm. of from my junior year of high school on, they were kind of promoting the bilingual experience without yeah necessarily meaning to promote the bilingual experiences you would walk into the room you would switch immediately to Spanish you walk out of the room you switch back to English mm -hmm. and that was kind of what I noticed with La Siempre Viva is I would speak to one person um, and switch to Spanish switch to another switch to another person and speak English because all of our designers for the most part were English speaking mm -hmm. and then all of the company for the most part was Spanish speaking but also had backgrounds in English so were very helpful and supportive of me when I could not remember the word or I needed them to repeat something but it was kind of just experiencing that again but then realizing what was happening in high school and like everything started to connect yeah that's really. I think that's a really good thing that they promoted that bilingual experience back in your high school. I think. I think that's something important that we should open up our minds to is learning a separate language. And like I said, I'd really like to. I want to give it another shot. But and like you said, with college and everything, once that picks up, to 
to get dedicated to learning a new subject of sorts. But, you know, this summer I might give it a try. That would be so cool to see you, like, in the center of production and then talk to one group in one language and then just switch over, like, right away. I yeah, can imagine our tech that would process be really cool was interesting. I was up at the tech, tech, tech table calling the show in English and then would need to give directions to the company in Spanish. And then the designers would look at me and be like, what did you just say? <laughs> so it would be kind of the double translation for me. But it was mm -hmm. interesting to kind of see how I could maintain the efficiency of that process while also translating. Yeah. No, that's so cool. How many people were you managing at one time, would you say? Um, once the show opened, it was a cast of about six to seven people. Once we opened, because I was also the lightboard op, so there was less people at the table. Mm -hmm. um, so it was myself, we had a soundboard operator and a super titles operator. Uh, and then we had our front of house team, which was a lot of the same people because they're a um, startup company and they all kind of help to... Um, complete all of the jobs that need to be done so they can grow their company and highlight their community even more. Right. Um, that was about it because I was a stage management team of one. I didn't have anybody backstage, so I was communicating with one, our, one of the actors and the founder of the theater backstage via headset, and then she'd hop off headset and come on stage to start the show. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so in the sense it was a smaller community, but it mm -hmm. was a great experience of them all kind of coming together to pursue theater instead of working with upwards of 50 to 60 people yeah. of a larger team. So it was a different experience, but it was really Yeah, that's cool. If you were to get into this later on um, in production, would you prefer to stay working with a smaller team or would you rather expand the number of people and have less responsibility in like what you're doing hands-on, would you say? Because I know you said you were like lightboard operator and then you were also doing like backstage management. I can imagine that's a lot going on at one time. The thing is with more people, it has more communication. So it's kind of a pick and choose kind of aspect is if you have a smaller team, you end up picking up a lot more of the responsibility. Mm -hmm. But if you have a bigger team, you end up having to communicate and delegate a lot more of that responsibility. So it's kind of... One way or the other, the show happens, and people get opportunities to highlight their work, their stories, either way. That's good. W what would you like to do afterwards if you had to, if you could choose anything? What, what would you like? Bear with me. I'm getting a very broad answer here. That's good. Is just to be able to tell stories, because mm -hmm. I know a lot of my fellow seniors and I are trying to figure out where to go, what to do, what show to do what we want to do for the rest of our lives. And I feel like a lot of us are getting to the point where we just want to be able to pursue our degree mm -hmm. and find somewhere where we can do that. Yeah. Would you ever think about starting your own thing? Like maybe your own production company? I mean, it's always an idea. Then you just add in the finances and the expenses it's and budgeting and yeah. all of the paperwork and hiring. Um, so it adds that part that I've never really Doug uh, put my foot in before. Um, no experience in that, so never say no, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You know, even with, even with the podcast studio, like, it's so much more expensive than I originally would have thought. I mean, you got to have, you got to have the computer, um, the soundboards, a couple hundred, uh, each of these mics is at least a hundred, and then you got you have to have a space, and then you have like these like little soundboards and everything like that. And I remember when I was first starting this, 
like I would I was budgeting everything because originally I was going to open up my own studio and it was going to be like upwards of a thousand dollars and which really isn't that much but coming from someone who wasn't going to make any money off of it and is a broke college student (laughs) um, then I figured that probably wasn't the best idea but then I looked online and I noticed hey Kent State actually has free podcast studios that anyone can use any student or faculty member can use Um, this one right here the student multimedia center is in the library and if you just go online and look up Kent State Podcast Studio uh, it will take you to the first link, and you can look on a schedule and schedule episodes for a month in advance. And that's exactly what I do in here. And it's been really cool. They're really cool, the people who work here um, and everything. An idea that I thought of a while ago was starting a like a, a company. The long-term vision for that, I thought it would be cool to make documentaries um, and base them around popular dissertations or research papers so say for example um like my work was within college student homelessness Mm -hmm. and one dissertation that i read was um interviews with students and figuring out how they came over barriers and persisted to graduate when they were facing housing insecurities and food insecurities and a big list of it was with interviews. I thought it would be cool to say, like, like, hey, with, like, a low-budget team, um, just reenact these interviews and then kind of shoot, like, a documentary-style film, maybe, like, less than an hour, that just turns the dissertation into, like, a video format. Because, you know, I think, I think research is really interesting, but a lot of people don't want to read the papers. A lot of the people mm-hmm. are a bit intimidated by it. Um, But a lot of people could really benefit from receiving that information as close to a firsthand source as possible, especially with social sciences and stuff like that. And, you know, that was one of the goals of the podcast was to highlight research experiences in an audio format, get people more engaged and interested. I think it's been really paying off. And it's also been showing people that it's not as intimidating and it's more open to whatever they want to study as well. Um, and it's been really cool for people to hear undergraduate research experiences and for them to know, like, like, hey, this is this is something that maybe I should do. So definitely, definitely really cool. Would you ever be an actor or an actress? I actually was first. Before really? I turned into the technical program um, in high school, I would perform in the musicals and dance, and that was first off trained dancer and then found stage management and kind of kept going through there why'd you switch um i fell in love with stage management and the technical side of theater first and Mm -hmm. then kind of pursued both in theater and then with dancing and injuries i just kind of moved on to technical theater and have loved it ever since yeah i heard dancing's tough yeah very tough yeah when i did uh football my coaches encouraged me to learn ballet. I don't know why that is, but it's like oh, it a helps. thing. It, it wait, how, how does it help? Um, it helps with balance and coordination. Um, mm-hmm. We actually had classes with our football team at my high school. Where really? They would come in for a day just to learn basics to see how it helped, and then they could take it from there when they wanted to. Were they good at it? It was their first time. <laughs> and that's all I would say on that. I'm a very confident person, but I know my uh, capabilities. And 
back then I was I was a really big guy and I still can't dance of any sort um, so I knew like I would be an absolute embarrassment if I took up ballet but I think being an actor would be cool I got an offer on Instagram a while ago and they were like we need actors for this documentary it was for on something with climate change and they said it was a Netflix show or something like that and she was she said she was a recruiting agent for included the company name in the bio it was like some big Hollywood thing and I thought it was legit I ran it by some friends they thought it was legit and then she hooked me up with a contract agent so she was the recruiting agent she hooked me up with a contract agent whose email was at gmail.com so that should have been the first red flag uh but he sent me these like three documents and it was like it was like the payment details the Netflix contract and then the script of what I was supposed to say and I thought it looked so official because it had like signatures and everything on it but the thing that caught me was they said this is a virtual gig and you give us your bank account number so we can send a uh, a check to you to buy the recording equipment and props except they don't need your bank account number to send a check to you exactly (laughs) I figure that out later on and they also said if anyone asks for any payment information before you record don't do it yeah yeah well don't you know just 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 don't do it maybe just don't do it at all i'm not (laughs) i don't want anyone to get scammed listening to my podcast but just be very wary of offers that come from social media that are too good to be true but i was so excited for like maybe three days i'm like i'm gonna be like in a netflix documentary the new star and then uh, i came to my senses uh, a little bit later, and I was like, yeah, let's not do this anymore. Yeah, the Instagram DM of a script would kind of throw me for a minute. Well, no, she, she was, so she was like a, a talent agent or whatever, and then she sent me to the contract agent, who then emailed me the script. Gotcha, gotcha. That's why there was so much, so much to play, but, it, but they were probably the same person. Probably. With different names and different head photos and everything, but... You, you know, I, I want to go back, DM her, and be like, that was kind of clever. But I'm not going to point out what she did wrong. Just, I don't want her to Yeah, maybe not help the scam. What, what was the name of your play again? Uh, La Siempre Viva. La Siempre Viva. What was kind of the plot to that? Um, the plot, it kind of told the story through a family that lives in Bogota, Colombia, and um, talks about the Palace of Justice siege. Mm-hmm. Um, so a true story. What's very pal- powerful story. What, what, what is the story? Um, Palace of Justice Siege in Bogota, Colombia was a huge political movement, for lack of a better word. I can't think of the right word off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, but they kind of discussed that moment in history very briefly in the actual play. Yeah. Um, they would have uh, local tour recordings, which are kind of just news articles, news casters, um, recordings, kind of putting the play in perspective of the actual siege of the Palace of Justice. And yeah. then... They would tell the story of how regular everyday families in Bogota dealt with their own problems, but also were kind of experiencing the Palace of Justice siege at the same time. They would have missing people. Um, the main family, their daughter, um, disappeared mm-hmm. about halfway through the show. Um, so they were dealing with that, trying to get her back, and just the emotional struggles, the familial struggles, the mental struggles of dealing with 
how much is happening in your life, but also being able to take that and parallel it to whatever you want to. Yeah. Because we had people leaving that theater, paralleling it to things that we had never even thought of before. But it was our director's 12-year-old son who was like, is this parallel to this event? And Mm -hmm. we were like, you know what? It actually could be. Like, if you just look at the details of what's happening, if you don't know the details of the Palace of Justice siege in and of itself, you watch the show and you're like, oh, I can relate this to this. Yeah. I can relate this to this. Um, and my parents would do the same thing and they would look at the supertitles or watch what was happening and they'd be like, I, like, people can relate to art even if they don't understand it. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of talk to more people in the environment of Latinos Theater Company, you get that opportunity to talk. I mean, yeah. I was able to talk to so many people throughout my time there that were helpful in me learning even more about the Spanish culture and the Spanish language, learn new words, learn more confidence in the language, and just having that opportunity that a lot of people don't, I don't want to say take advantage of, because take advantage has a negative connotation, but like take the opportunity to learn from it. Mm -hmm. A lot of people just see different language, I don't understand it, I won't understand the play. That's not necessarily true. Right. Because you can go in, you can pick up a word here and there from your high school Spanish class and still walk out of there emotionally moved, feel the powerful story, and be able to relate it to your own life and the life that is happening that we are living in. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's all about, like, the experience, you know, how you experience it. Um, and old guest, uh, Xavier, has come on the show a couple of times. He, and he was, his work was within Shakespeare. And he brought up the point, like, kids don't aren't really liking it in the classroom is because it's through reading and this type of work is meant to be experienced yeah. you take away a lot better of a message and your own message through experiencing it because that's ultimately how this kind of stuff was was meant to be because i know a lot of my friends took the two years of spanish and then hated the fact that we were going off of flashcards every day hated yeah. the fact that it was tests every week the vocab exams um And then I saw that mirrored in the college experience of people were just not having it with the tests every week, the vocab, the being pushed to regurgitate this information Mm -hmm. that when it comes to a Spanish experience, they relate it to the same thing and it's not, but not a lot of people get the opportunity to do something like that or experience it in that way that they just see their high school Spanish experience and then kind of relate it to that and automatically turn off from it. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Um, yeah, like I said, I had to take the two years of Spanish in high school. And the our main curriculum was the, the flashcards, the reading, the quizzes, and the regurgitation. I was always interested in the culture of it. But mm-hmm. that was – I'm very interested in cultures and societies, but that was maybe the first week I think, and then everything else with the language. I was so bad at Spanish. And I remember, shout out to my teacher, uh, Miss Ines. She had it for two years, and she would she would stay in during lunch with me and then, like, do, like, tutoring with me. I just had the hardest time getting it. But, you know, I think, I think that's a big turnoff in education with a lot of subjects is just that, memorizing and regurgitation mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff and it, it takes out that creative aspect um and that desire to to know more mm-hmm. 
because you memorize, regurgitate, and then forget a week later. And then you have to go back for the exams and cram study for everything. You don't have time to, like, dive Mm -hmm. in and learn more, you know? That's something that that I'm glad that research connected me with, is it gives me the opportunity to dive more into what I'm interested in and do my own problem solving, come up with my own answers and my own ideas. Mm -hmm. I know... Originally, I was going in with um, uh, pre-medicine, and I was taking the chemistries, the biologies, and all that kind of stuff. And I may switch back. I'm going to figure out over after this summer. But I was listening to um, an interview with a, a pre-medical st- or with a medical student, and she decided to drop out and, and switch over to a PhD because she said that during like during medical school, that's all it is is consume and regurgitate and mm-hmm. it's like you're drinking out of a fire hose is the analogy that a lot of students use but she said that being placed in a research setting gave her the opportunity to dive more into a rabbit hole mm-hmm. and ultimately um realized that what she was doing to herself was more valuable mm-hmm. because she was actually adding to the field you know what i mean mm-hmm. so that's that's a, a big takeaway that, that i realized so what, what do you think that you've learned from the research process personally? Um, the big thing that I took away from it is kind of experiencing how people learn because a big part of stage management, no matter what language it is, at least to me, is figuring out how people's minds work so you can work best with them because yeah. no matter how many people you're working with, it's best to keep that room as efficient as possible. And then when you add in a different language, let alone a different language with different cultures onto it, which makes the language inherently different. Mm -hmm. For example, people in Mexico speak a different Spanish than people in Argentina, which we had people from different Spanish-speaking countries, which added a different level of they would speak different, they would have different phrases for different things based on cultural growth and how how we have slang terms, how we have paraphrasing Um, things like that it's the same in the spanish-speaking countries so it's kind of jumping into that and going off of that learning those learning how best people work how some people don't understand if you go about something this way so you have to go about it this way but some people will learn from idea a so it's kind of merging those two so i kind of walked out with that process in my brain and being able to apply that to any other show that I do Mm -hmm. um even if that language if the show is completely in English it's still figuring out how people work best and kind of supporting that no matter what language it's in cool that's really interesting I didn't realize that uh how how big is the difference between um Mexico and Argentina and the way that they speak Spanish there is a thicker accent yeah in Argentina with some of the letters um and then it's just how as the countries evolve they kind of i want to say developed their own language in a sense of the same of the basis is still spanish but it's the phrases and the things that you only catch up on like you don't learn from a book you learn from being in mexico or speaking to somebody from mexico Mm -hmm. and the same for argentina it's the things that you learn about a language past the book is the best way that i can explain it interesting is because the book will tell you so much, and then when you get there, because I was talking to somebody, I think last week, who was 
taking French in high school and then went to Paris and then realized that they didn't know a single thing. <laughs> and it's because you learn so much from a textbook that hasn't been updated in five, ten years mm-hmm. that when you get there, you learn the cultural differences that have evolved over time. It's like most of our English slang isn't necessarily worded in textbooks. You learn it. We have people from other countries coming here, and we have to explain them. I think the biggest one that I've known is it's raining cats and dogs. Yeah. Is you tell that to somebody from a different country, and they will freak out. (laughs) Um, But, like, things like that Mm -hmm. is you don't understand it unless you've just inherently grown up with it. Right. And it was the same thing for me, but flipped, of I was the one who didn't understand it. Um, So I would go in. They'd say something to me and be like, hold on repeat and then they'd repeat it realize what was happening and then word it in a different way and then we'd kind of take that as a learning opportunity for me yeah so i could learn more about the culture and the things that aren't inherently stated in textbooks yeah no that's really interesting i'm really glad you brought that up uh i had a i had a friend his name's owen and he helped with a lot of the production with this kind of stuff and showing me how to do like all this um because he he worked in theater but he was all sound production and video production he did. He's done this thing a couple of times where he just buys a plane ticket, goes over to Vietnam, and then just lives in hostels for maybe, I think the last trip he was, it was like eight months or something. But he went over there knowing bare minimum Vietnamese. And he said within like maybe four months or so, he was able to pick it up just like that. And he said... When he was trying to learn Vietnamese, you know, pen and paper, laptop book, whatever, um, he said that was very challenging for him. But he went over into Vietnam, and he was able to pick it up just like that from talking to the locals. That's interesting. That's really interesting that it works that way. Alexander, if you had one more message to share with the world, what would it be? Take opportunities as they come, because you can only learn... You can learn so much from a textbook, but you can learn more from experiencing things and... You never know when you might get that opportunity again. Yeah. Go out and experience the world. There are so many adventures that await. It's been awesome having you on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. Anytime. You are welcome back anytime. Again, this is your host, John, of The Research Review, creating a platform to inspire. Peace out.